book of 1 John this morning, 1 John chapter number 1. I like the part of that song that says, This robe of flesh I'll drop and rise and seize the everlasting prize. That always speaks to my heart. You know, we've been doing this traction challenge now for four weeks. We're on our fifth week now. And I know that it has certainly challenged me to spend more time in the Bible. But the more time that I spend in the Bible, the more time that I desire to spend in prayer. And uh, I appreciate that sweet hour of prayer. And there's nothing more precious in life than to be spending time in prayer, not watching the clock, not knowing what time it is, and get done praying and realize that it's been over an hour And you didn't even, it just seemed like it was five or ten minutes, and that is a precious time. And it's not always that way. Sometimes prayer is labor, but uh, it is always a blessing, spending time talking to the Lord, listening to the Lord, and spending time in the Word of God. Would you stand with me as we read one verse, 1 John chapter number 1. We This was part of our text uh, last week, and... Before we read our text, if you were not here last week, I know we had about six or seven families that were out of town last week. Uh, we've still got three or four families that are out of town this week. But last week I preached on uh, the Bible is the book for me. And if you were not here and you're part of Temple Baptist Church, I want to encourage you uh, very strongly, if you would, go online and listen to that message. I believe that The Bible is one of the most important things in our life, and uh, we focused on that last week. We're going to focus some more on it here today, but I just want to encourage you, if you would, please uh, get online and listen to that message from last week if you didn't have an opportunity to hear it uh, already. 1 John chapter number 1 and verse number 1, the Bible says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. Of course, John is speaking primarily about the Lord Jesus Christ while he was here alive on planet earth. And he says, our hands have handled of the word of life. Let's pray. Father, it's good to be able to call you our father. It's good to know Jesus Christ as savior It's good to be in church today, and Lord, as we bring the Word of God to this congregation and anyone who's watching live stream, uh, we ask that the message today would be effective, that it would accomplish exactly what you would have it to accomplish, but Lord, we pray first and foremost that the preaching of the Word of God today would put a smile on your face and would be pleasing to you, and we ask that you'd use it according to your will in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want to preach this morning on mishandling the Bible. Thank you, you may be seated. There is no stretch, nothing clever about making a connection between the context of the verse that we just read and the Bible. I understand primarily when... John is writing this, he's talking about the Word incarnate, the Word in flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. John did not have a book like this that we have, 66 books 
Old Testament and New Testament. They had copies of the Scripture. Not everyone was able to carry or have a copy of the Scripture. We saw that last week, as his custom was, that Jesus would show up at the synagogue on the Sabbath and he would read the Bible, read the Scripture. And a lot of times they had to do that. This was before the printing press. They would have to go down to the synagogue where there was a copy of the Scripture. So many things that we take for granted today that we can go to Walmart and we can buy a copy of the inerrant, eternal Word of God for $2.99. That's amazing, folks. Oh, what the disciples, the apostles, oh, what previous saints of God would do to enjoy the privilege that, hey, for just a few bucks, for just a small handful of change, I can have a copy of the Word of God. And yet we take it for granted so much. The connection is nothing clever here. The Word, capital W, it's the same way that John writes about it as he did in the Gospel of John. Chapter 1, verse number 1, in the beginning was the Word, capital W, and the Word, capital W, was with God, and the Word was God. In verse number 11, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Bible right here, we can look at it as if this is the written Word of God. It's the same person as the incarnate Word of God. Hebrews 10, verse number 7. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. Jesus Christ is right here in this Bible. How we handle the Bible is of utmost importance. It will affect your life in every aspect. The consequences can be heaven or hell. Misery or happiness, conflict or peace. Now, most of us have in one way or another mishandled our Bibles. Maybe you've left them at church, had to come back and get it on Wednesday night. You didn't plan on coming back Wednesday night, but you're afraid that the janitor or the preacher would find out, I didn't have my Bible all week. What have I been doing? (laughs) Maybe you've spilled something on your Bible before. Or accidentally, uh, you've torn a page, and we've all mishandled. I remember when we were in Papua New Guinea on a mission trip, the missionary there said, look, you don't want to come and visit here for three weeks and go back home with malaria, so bring your mosquito spray and bring the 100% DEET kind. I mean, that stuff's some powerful stuff. One thing I'll tell you about 100% DEET, you get it. On the cover of a leather Bible, it will dissolve the dye and you will find Bible dye on everything, on your hands, on your clothes, everywhere. I got that mosquito spray on the, uh, on my Bible, uh, uh, cover, the leather. Not good. Occasionally, I've picked up my Bible case. I like to keep a, my Bible in a case, a little zip-up thing or a Velcro thing, because I always have notes and all kinds of stuff that I have to keep, and pens and paraphernalia that preachers have to keep with them, and I just keep it all in a Bible case. 
Every now and then I'll pick it up by the handle and I forgot to zip it and the Bible falls out and, you know, it never does just fall like this. It always falls like this and it's just like, oh no, I got bent pages and then you're going through and straighten it out and that happens from time to time. I, um, I did this once. Maybe you've done it before. I left it on the top of my car. And didn't figure that out until I got home and then had to backtrack. And I remember one time I never did find where that Bible blew off. How many of you have ever had that happen before? All right, you make me feel like a real idiot. No one has ever done that before. Did any, has anybody almost done that before? All right, three, four people. All right. Full idiot, partial idiots, the rest of you are intelligent. When we say mishandling the Bible, we're not speaking, obviously, about the physical aspect of how we treat this book that we carry, but rather we're talking about mishandling it in a mental, a spiritual, or an emotional way. In short, how we respond or how we understand, and in many ways, how we value the Word of God. That's what our point is here this morning on mishandling the Scripture. So having said that, how can you mishandle the Bible? Well, the Bible will give us some ways that we can mishandle it. Number one, you can drop it. Now, I'm not talking about dropping it out of my case. I'm not talking about it falling out of my arm. I'm talking about what 1 Samuel 3.19 says. It says that Samuel, a man of God, he grew up and the Lord was with him. And watch this, he did let none of his words fall to the ground. We're not talking about physical words or scriptures here. We're talking about the literal words of God as a prophet, as God's spokesman. Samuel was faithful to the word of God. He didn't treat it like a salad bar like these modern preachers do today. Now, I like salad bars, I like choices, and I like to be able to build my salad the way that I want. You order a salad in a restaurant, and usually it'll say on the menu what all comes on the salad, and usually I have several things. It's like, hey, I want a salad, this is what kind of dressing I want on the side, and leave off this and leave off this. I don't want those in my salad. If they're in there, then I just got to pick through it and pick it out myself. We make choices, but a salad bar is even more. We got more choices And you go through and you pick out all the stuff that you want, or at least maybe the stuff that is not bad for you, depending on what mode you're in. But you pick and you choose. You leave off the stuff you don't like, that doesn't taste good, and you put all the stuff that you want. I've looked at other people's salads and I go, you like that? I've had, I went, I've had lunch with people before and they looked at my salad and they said, you're going to eat that? Because I put stuff on my plate that I like that they didn't like. And, you know, we've all been around people, and I'm probably some of you are those people that it's like the way I like my food is right, and the way anybody else likes it is wrong. Uh, you know, you know how it is. People are passionate about their food. I always just look at it. It's just, like, well, this is the way I like it. You like it a different way. I'll eat it my way. You eat it your way. It's not right or wrong. It's just different. But yeah, I know some of you, it's like, no, my way is the right way. How dare you make it differently? 
Well, there are a lot of Christians that treat the Bible like a salad bar. I'm going to pick and choose what I like. And uh, if I don't like it, I'm just going to leave it out. Samuel was not that way. He didn't let any of God's words fall to the ground. Paul was that uh, like Samuel. It says in Acts 20, verse number 27, he said, For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Paul had made a commitment that I'm not going to shun that. I'm going to tell you the good, the bad, the the ugly, everything in between. I want to make sure that what I'm giving you is not my opinion, but I'm giving you the Word of God. And by the way, if you love God, you're going to love His Word. And if you love His Word, you're going to like even the stuff that doesn't taste good. You're going to like it because you're going to know that it's truth. There are many truths that people don't want to hear. When you try to tell them, you will not be their hero. You will not be popular and you will not gain approval and appreciation. It's kind of like, I can't remember the game, who it was, but I remember that this was to win the game that a an NFL player intercepted a pass on the five-yard line of the other, of the other team. He had 95 yards to run to return that interception for a touchdown. And I mean, he is running and he's like, nobody's near him. And he gets to about the five yard line and he starts to celebrate and he fumbles the ball on the one yard line. And, you know, all these offensive linemen that are 20 yards behind him (laughs) trying to catch their breath, they finally catch up and they jump on the ball and no, there was no the fumble, they get the ball back. And they end up driving the distance of the field and end up winning the game when the other team could have won. You know, there's a lot of preachers like that. A lot of preachers that let the Word of God fall to the ground. Oh, they've got all kinds of fame, popularity, crowds. Oh, everybody loves you. There are preachers that I could name their names and you would say, yeah, I've heard of them. And you know what? They're not faithful to the word of God. They're well known, but that doesn't mean that they're faithful. Samuel was faithful. Paul was faithful. I want to be faithful. I still got a lot of, hopefully a lot of life ahead of me. And so time will tell. I don't want to get to the end of my life and fumble the ball like that football player did. I want to finish and I want to finish clean and I want to be able to look back and say, I didn't compromise the word of God. I didn't play salad bar with it. I didn't skip and choose and try to, you know, when I study the word of God, when I figure out what I'm going to preach, I didn't say, I wonder what the people want to hear today. But rather I'd say, God, what do you want the people to hear today? What do they need? And what do you want to say and to be faithful to the entire Bible. So yeah, you can drop it. Number two, you can rest it and twist it. Rest it and twist it. Notice that word rest, W-R-E-S-T. It's the same root word as wrestle. And it means to take and to pull something out, to wrestle it out of its context. Now, wrestling can be intentional. It can also be unintentional. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter number 3, it's on, in my Bible, it's just a page to the left of our text, 
And 2 Peter 3 and verse number 14, it says, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. Notice what Peter's saying to us as believers. We need to be found by God without spot and blameless. That's important. Verse 15, and account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Now, I think that you take Paul's writings, and they were, they're a little bit different than the Jewish epistles. Paul emphasized salvation by the grace of God. Paul's the only one that came out and said, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul's the only one that talked about this uh, spiritual circumcision that Brother Ben Smoker preached about last week a little bit. Uh, Paul's the only one that talked about eternal security as simply as, I'm not saying the other apostles didn't write about it, but Paul just came right out and spelled it out in detail. And so the Jewish believers were falsely accusing Paul and saying, oh, you're just saying that, hey, if you're saved by the grace of God, you can just go out and do whatever you want. Paul said, I'm not saying that. Paul said, what shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein. Paul wasn't saying that, hey, once saved, always saved, just live however you want and you'll still go to heaven. Paul never said that or even implied that. But he was being accused of that. And Peter, the apostle here, understood that this was the controversy. And so he's bringing this out and he's saying that even our beloved brother Paul, he's wrote these things, but watch verse 16. As also in all his epistles speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, they pull it out of context, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. There is a movement called grace that is popular in churches today. I mean, it is really popular, and it is this teaching that God doesn't care how you live. You're saved by grace. Enjoy your booze. Enjoy your entertainment. Do whatever you want. Talk however you want. Listen and watch whatever you want. It doesn't matter because you are saved by the grace of God. I'm here to tell you, folks, that is false. It is wrong. It is wicked, and Peter says here that they are resting the Scripture unto their own destruction. Look at verse 17. He said, Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. This modern preaching of grace is causing believers to fall from their steadfastness. I know I'm not saved by works. I know that I am God's workmanship. 
I know that he will, I know I'm eternally saved and I am not saved by my own goodness, not one bit. It is all by the blood of Jesus Christ. But I know this, that because Jesus Christ saved me and redeemed me, he lives inside of me, there is something inside of me that wants to live for him, wants to be steadfast, wants to live holy and clean. Someone said, oh, you believe in that once saved, always saved. You can believe you can sin all you want and still go to heaven. I got news for you. If you've been regenerated, you're going to sin a whole lot more than you want because the Holy Spirit of God inside of you wants to be holy and righteous. Yeah, you'll have a battle and a struggle with the flesh, but you won't buy into this nonsense that, oh, I accepted Jesus. I prayed a little prayer. Now I can just do whatever I want. That's just a bunch of nonsense. It's resting the scripture. Then there's twisting the scripture. Second Corinthians 4, verse number 1, Paul said, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. i tell you what, there are a lot of popular teachings that are twisting of the Bible, twisting of the scriptures. Uh, here's a couple of old school examples. I, I've been around these. I, I grew up in church for the most part. I've been walking with God for 38 years, preaching, teaching. I've seen a lot in that time, not near as much as some of these other men that have been saved and serving God longer than me, but there's some old school examples of this. Uh, the first one, this is the big one. That's Matthew 7, verse number 1, says, Judge not that you be not judged. Most of the people quote it wrong. Judge not lest you be judged. They always, you know, I don't think they do this with their finger, but that's how it makes you want to say, yeah, yeah. don't be, don't be criticizing my sin. You can't do that. That's not Christian. You know, you ought to read the context of that. Nowhere is Jesus saying that it's wrong to stand up and call something wrong as being wrong. Nowhere. In fact, Jesus also said, no one ever quotes the verse where Jesus rebuked them and said, judge righteous judgment. That's also in the Bible. No one has ever, you know, whenever, whenever I've seen something that's, that's sinful and just kept my mouth shut, I've never had a believer come up and say, how come you kept your mouth shut? Jesus said, judge righteous judgment. No one ever rebukes for that one. What's happening? They're twisting and resting the scripture so that no one can ever speak up against something that's wrong or sinful. And now I know that this does have a truth that believers can go too far and be too judgmental. Jesus, the whole context here, he says that with what measure you judge, you're going to be judged again. You better make sure that you get that beam out of your own eye before you start trying to pluck the splinter out of your neighbor's eye. That's what Jesus is teaching. How about the next one? 1 Timothy 5, verse 23. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Well, I had a, I had a, a drunk downtown Asheville while I was street preaching. Get in my face. Literally, while I'm preaching, he steps right in front of me. And he's staggering. He goes, a little wine for the stomach's sake. 
I'm just a young man. I'm 20 years old. And so I stopped preaching while he's in my face. Well, first of all, it was the, the, the breath was rough. Okay. So I kind of stepped back. I stopped preaching and, uh, and I didn't know what to say that I'm new at this. All right. I wasn't expecting nobody trained me. Here's what you respond to when the drunk gets in your face and says, Oh, I don't whine for the stomach's sake. So all I said was, I think you've had more than a little. And so he commences to, 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 I don't even remember what he said, but within literally seconds, a, uh, an Asheville city policeman was right there and grabbed him and escorted him out of the way and looked back and said, keep preaching, preacher. I bet that don't happen in Asheville today. <laughs> oh, the good old days. <laughs> hey, how about Matthew 3.11, where it says, He shall baptize you with... The, this is a comparison between John the Baptist and Jesus. He said, He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. A lot of the charismatics said, Have you, have you had the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost? They, they like to speed up that word Holy Ghost. Have you had the baptism of fire and the Holy Ghost? Listen, if you read that in context, we're not going to take the time to do it this morning, but you can look at it yourself. It's in Matthew 3. Take a look. You don't want that baptism of fire because it says he'll thoroughly purge his floor and he'll gather. I mean, that baptism of fire is God's judgment. And it's a contrast. The baptism of the Holy Ghost the baptism of fire. You want this one, you don't want this one. And so that's a twisting or resting of the scripture. Now, let's look at some more modern contemporary ones. Maybe some of these you've heard here recently. The first one, and I'm going to go quickly with all of these. This is not an apologetic where I'm going to prove all these out. I'm just going to throw them your way as mishandling examples of the scripture. The first one is the prayer of Jabez which is basically a teaching. I know a very popular man uh, a number of years ago wrote a book about this, a series of messages, and basically it's the teaching of name it and claim it. Jabez prayed a prayer in First Chronicles 4, verse number 10. This is a portion of it. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed and enlarge my coast. And so this author and well-known preacher wrote this book and basically taught Christians that if you'll name it and claim it, then God's going to give it to you. I I saw a fundamentalist write a book that refuted that. (laughs) You know what the name of the book was called? I just wanted more land. And that's what, when Jabez said, Lord, would you enlarge my coast? They were talking about inheritance, all right? And Jabez just wanted some more land. Now, I believe in the prayer of Jabez. I've preached it. I, I, in fact, frequently when I pray, I pray, I say, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed and enlarge my coast and that thy hand would be with me, that thou wouldest deliver me from evil, that it might not grieve me. I pray that all the time, but I don't pray it at a name it or claim it thing. I just want the Lord to bless me. I want the Lord to make my life effective for His glory and honor, and I want His hand to be with me, and I want Him to keep me from evil. 
Jabez said that it might not grieve me. And when I'm praying it, I always say, Lord, that it might not grieve me. But more importantly, that it might not grieve you. Because I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Then we have Third John, verse number 2. Beloved, I wish above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health, even as thy soul prospereth. This is what we call the prosperity gospel. And I'm telling you, it is a multi-million dollar business in America today. Oh, you get up and you start preaching that, hey, if you'll follow these steps and if you'll do this and you'll claim this, if you'll have enough faith, you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy. And they use this verse out of context to do it. That This verse says nothing about that. You know, there are prosperity gospel preachers. You know, there's a man named Kenneth Copeland. You've heard his name probably. He's on the TV and he's all over the place and he has a net worth. Depending on which site you go on, the low end, he's worth $300 million. At the high end, it's $760 million. I'm not his accountant. I don't know which one's telling the truth, okay? But that is his net worth, which tells me that the prosperity gospel is not nearly as effective as being a preacher of the prosperity gospel. You'll have to think about that one for a moment. Joel Osteen has a net worth of $100 million. Benny Hinn has a net worth of $42 million. And so, yeah, I... I guess maybe some of the followers have experienced some prosperity, but not near as much as the people that are teaching them this false doctrine that if you have enough faith, then you'll be healthy and wealthy and everything will just be wonderful in your life. I don't think the Apostle Paul understood that teaching. I don't think Peter understood that teaching. I don't think that James understood that teaching. I know Stephen didn't understand that teaching. I know that John the Apostle didn't understand that teaching. John the Baptist didn't understand it. Let's see. Uh, Pretty much nobody that was ever a man of God understood that teaching. And there's a reason for it because it's simply not true. The next one I call compromise for the sake of evangelism. And they all like this verse, 1 Corinthians 9.22, to the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And they've twisted that and rested that saying that, well, we should, in order to reach the lost, we need to act like the lost. Or maybe we need to bring the world up on the platform and we need to have a rock concert or something that's going to draw them in. I, you know, there are, there are people who faithfully preach the gospel that use worldly entertainment to draw a crowd. That's not what this verse says. This verse simply just says, I need to reach people where they're at. Doesn't mean compromise has nothing to do with worldliness or our appearance or entertainment. There are men out there like the son of Charles Stanley is Andy Stanley, worth $45 million. Rick Warren is worth $25 million. I thought he'd be worth more than that. You know, maybe, I, I think that probably, you can probably look at the net worth of these popular preachers and the more the net worth, the more the compromise. Yes, sir. 
Maybe the ones I'm listen, I'm not saying that every preacher that's got a net worth in the million dollars is a compromiser. I'm just simply saying that it seems to go hand in hand. Hey, how about using the Bible as a motivational tool? Scripture such as Philippians 4.13 that says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Yeah! Motivational. Hey, you can do all things for Christ. Whatever you want to do, you can do it. Hey, you want to be a country western star? You can do it through Jesus. Read the text. You know what Paul's saying? He says, I've learned how to abound and I've learned how to be abased. I've learned how to follow the Lord when I got money in my pocket. I've learned how to follow the Lord when all I've got is Hoover flags. Anybody ever remember Hoover flags? That was during the Depression. People would have empty pockets and they called that Hoover flags. I thought some of you were alive back then. No, just kidding. It's in the history book. I wasn't around then. Paul is not saying that I can thrive and, you know, and this motivates me that I can be all that I want to be. You know what Paul's life and ministry was like? A shipwreck. I got stoned when I tried to preach over there. I've had many times where I've been hungry. I've had times where I'm just scraping by to get enough clothes to cover myself here. Paul, that's what Paul meant when he said, I can do all things through Christ. It's talking more about having a good state of mind when things are bad than it's talking about this motivation. Yeah, just like Romans eight thirty seven. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You know, all this is is just taking the... It's taking the word of God and the power, and kind of like the politicians do, they'll throw a verse of scripture out there for authority, but they don't even know what the Bible says about something. It's a bunch of nonsense. Brother Brother Ben told me a, about a, a verse that he saw on a T-shirt, and it said that um, it said something about that God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. Well, the verse is talking about Jerusalem, but the wording of it made it, it was being warred by a feminist and it made it look like God was a she. But it was just a portion of a verse taken out of context. The Bible is used as a motivational tool by men like Stephen Furtick. That's a local guy from Charlotte, net worth $55 million. Now, moving on from these things, here's one of my personal favorites, Jeremiah 29, verse number 11. I can't tell you how many people I've been talking to that you knew they weren't walking with the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. I've, I've witnessed uh, easily a dozen people that have said, this is my favorite verse. Have you ever heard this? And they're just using it to say, oh, God thinks that I'm wonderful and he has all these wonderful thoughts about me. Read the rest of the chapter. God's not talking about me or you. He's talking about Israel. And if you read the rest of the chapter, this one verse is, is stuck in the middle of it 
giving some hope that, hey, when it's all said and done, God's going to bring Israel back. But every other verse in the chapter is saying, God's going to get you. (laughs) I mean, it's judgment on Israel. You're backslid and I'm going to judge you and I'm going to do this and that is horrible things. But they take it out of context for their own sake. Second Peter chapter two, verse number three. What does God think about all of this resting and twisting of scripture? And through covetousness shall they with feigned words, that's fake, it's manipulation tactics, make merchandise of you. You know, let me tell you something. The worst sin in all of this is not the Osteens and the Copelands and the Furtics and the Hens and all of that. That's not the worst sin in all this. The worst sin is how gullible God's people are. That money came from somewhere. It came from gullible Christians that won't read the Bible for themselves. That's the crime. They make merchandise of you whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not and their damnation slumbereth not. That's what God thinks of them. And so, yes, folks, in mishandling the word of God, we can drop it. We can rest and twist it. And then number three, you can corrupt it and blaspheme it. Second Corinthians 2.17, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God and the sight of God speak we in Christ. The word of God is corrupted when it is not spoken out of sincerity. Titus 2, verse number 5, To be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Listen, when when Christian ladies act more like the feminist movement than they act like the Word of God says they're supposed to act. God says, you are blaspheming the Word of God. We discredit it. We take away. Why is there so little power in the preaching of the Word of God today? Because God's people aren't backing it up as an example as to what this Bible can do. We need a revival, but there's not going to be some revival that comes down on us until we as God's people start deciding, I better start straightening out my life and living according to the Bible, not according to the cultural expectations around me. And my last point, number four, you can neutralize the Bible. Jesus said in Mark 7, 13, making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. Religious traditions, religious expectations. So many people, they, they're, they're like the woman at the well. When Jesus said to the woman, you know, she says, well, our father said we're supposed to worship in this mountain, but the Jews say we're supposed to worship in this mountain. And you know what Jesus said to her? Ye worship, you know not what. You don't even have a clue what or why you're worshiping. And the average Christian, easily, upwards of 90% of every church attender today, has no idea what they're doing, why they're doing it, and what they're supposed to be doing. And it all comes down to this book right here. Like I said last week, 
If you'll get in this book, it will change your life. It will have those positive effects on how you think, on how you live. It will give you victory in areas of your life that you never, ever thought that you could have victory. And it's all because of the power of the Word of God. I conclude with two verses and a question. Jeremiah 48, verse number 10 said, Cursed be he that doeth the work in, uh, of the Lord deceitfully, and cursed be he that keepeth back his sword from blood. God doesn't want his preachers to sugarcoat it or keep stuff back. I, listen, I, I, I hope that you have been edified and helped and instructed by the message today. But you know what? If it, if you've been cut here today, it wasn't this preacher that cut you. It was the truth of the Word of God. I, you know, I'm, anyhow, God says there's a curse upon the man of God who will take the sword of the Spirit and just talk about it. It's, we're supposed to use it. And when we use the Word of God, it's a two-edged sword. It cuts going. It cuts coming. Listen, when the preacher preaches something and it cuts you, don't you think that it's also cutting the preacher? It's a powerful book. Someone told me here recently, they just recently made a decision to go forward for God. And he said, he told me, he said, man, every day I've been reading in the Psalms and the Proverbs. And he said, every day I'm like, oh no, I got to change this. And you get around the Word of God and you'll start feeling like, I'm not doing anything right in my life. You know what that is, don't you? That's the painful joy of discipleship. Listen, if you're a child of God, that pain of conviction is a joy. It's a blessing. David said, before I was afflicted, I went astray. Listen, I don't care if I read the Bible. I read something just the other day, and it totally, totally blew up a philosophy that I had in ministry. I'm like, whoa, I've been doing that, and the Bible says I'm a fool if I do that. You know what I did? I just said, I God, i got to change this. i got to quit doing this. First Thessalonians, and this is what I want you to get out of everything I've said. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse number 13. For this cause also, thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. If you receive it as the word of God rather than the word of man, what does it do? Which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Well, the Bible's not doing me any, me any good. Well, there's your answer right there. Because you're just listening to what the preacher has to say. And you're not taking it that, hey, what the preacher's telling me is the Word of God. If you'll believe it as such and respond to it, then it will affect, it'll have an effect. It will work in your life. You will experience this book to be the most powerful influence in your life. We can talk about all these corrupt celebrity preachers all day long, but the question is, how are you handling the Word of God?